If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll be reading from verses 6 to 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. I'll be reading from the ESV, and it'll also go up on the screen for you guys. May God bless the reading of his holy word. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we learned about the false teaching that young Pastor Timothy was facing in the church of Ephesus. And Paul gave some very strong instruction on how Timothy should deal with heresy and how to protect the church. And now in our passage today, Paul's instruction continues, and it's much more positive. Last week was a little harsh, a little negative, a little critical at times. Um, But this week, it's much more positive and constructive. In particular, Paul is talking about godliness. Now, if you do a word search on godliness In the New Testament, you'll find that it appears 15 times, okay? 15 times. I didn't read the entire New Testament and just look. I've got some great, like, Bible software. I just put in godliness, and boom, it all comes out like a really cool, like, Google for Bible. Anyways, um, and so it pops up 15 times. And of those 15 times, Paul uses it nine times in 1 Timothy, all right? And so godliness is clearly, it's certainly one of the major themes in this epistle, Now, if I ask you to think of a godly person in your life, like right now, just imagine them. Think of a godly person. Who would you think of? Who comes to mind? Is it your grandmother who always goes to morning prayer and has been praying for you ever since you you were a kid? Is it an old Bible study teacher or a missionary that you know? Who is a godly person to you? Now, uh, many things have been said about me as a pastor, right? Uh, You know, compliments for the most part. And... um, but unfortunately, when, when you know, people are just kind of describing me in my ministry, uh, godly isn't something I hear often. Hopefully, it's not because I'm ungodly. Um, people usually say I'm like a decent leader or a nice guy, teacher, solid teacher, something of the sort. Uh, but I think for many of us, when we think of godly people, when we think of godliness, right, we're usually thinking of people who are like introverts, quiet modest, maybe even a little boring, right? They're the people who you imagine are always just reading their Bible or praying and never doing anything fun. They're the people that you want at your Bible study, but don't want at your bachelor party, right? The godly people are kind of like killjoys, right? No personality, right? Now, in our passage today, Paul is going to paint us a picture of what true godliness looks like. And it's not plain. It's not passive, True godliness is active, it's deliberate, it's strong, it's captivated by the glory of God. And so the title of today's message is simply Godliness. And my hope is that by the end of this message, we would gain a biblical vision of what true godliness is, and that we would set our lives in pursuit of that vision, that we would become a people, that we would become a church 
that trains itself in godliness. We're gonna look at three things as we unpack the text. First, the call to godliness. Second, the profit of godliness. And lastly, the hope of godliness. Very simple. So the call to godliness, the profit of godliness, and finally, the hope of godliness. Uh, Let's go to verses six and seven. In verses six and seven, Paul writes this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, when Paul is talking about putting these things before the brothers, the verb that he uses in the Greek, it actually carries the image of a builder laying a foundation, right? Laying a foundation for a building. And we all know that a solid foundation is a building's most important attribute. You know, oftentimes we'll go and look at a building and we'll look at the paint and the outward, you know, um, structures and how well the interior decoration is, right? But the most important part of a building is its foundation. And here, Paul is describing the foundation for becoming a good servant in Christ Jesus. He says, these are the building blocks if you want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Put these things before the brothers, before the church. What are these building blocks? It's the word of God. In verse six, he describes the word of God as the the words of the faith, right? The Christian faith and good doctrine. Good doctrine that Timothy has received from Paul. Good doctrine that Timothy has received from his parents in the church. Brothers and sisters, do you have an appetite for the word of God? Do you care about doctrine? There are too many Christians in the church that do not care about doctrine. They think that's just for Christian nerds. That's just for pastors. Friends, do you have a strong foundation? Do you have these core building blocks for discipleship, to be a servant of Jesus Christ? I want to tell you very plainly and honestly, the Christian life without the word of God is no life at all. The Christian life without the word of God present, without you spending time in the word, being mastered by the word, being convicted by the word, if it is absent, there is no Christian life there at all. If you come out to church and you participate in small groups, even if you serve without a regular diet of the word, you're just being religious. You're just being a cultural Christian. You're just here because your friends are here or your quote unquote community is here. And I want to tell you what all nations needs is not more cultural Christians. What the world needs to see are not more cultural Christians, people who've grown up in the church and check that off when they're registering to vote. The world needs to see, the church needs to be filled with godly Christians. Now, there is one warning Paul gives in our passage today, and he tells Timothy to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, okay? And we're like, what is he talking about? That sounds like very interesting, very intriguing. Other translations use the phrase old wives' tales. He's saying, Timothy, as a pastor, as a leader, as a servant of Jesus Christ, don't get distracted, don't get sidetracked, don't get bogged down by silly old wives' tales. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail on what they are, 
But theologian John Stott, he describes them as spiritual junk food. Let me give you some modern examples of spiritual junk food that some Christians can get obsessed with. Several years ago, I'm sure you guys remember this, uh, there was a book called The Da Vinci Code, okay? It took America by storm. 40 million copies were sold. Okay, I just want to tell you, compared to... um, there's, uh, there's a really famous book in, in Christianity. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, right? One of the most famous Christian books ever written. It's like, and like on the cover, it says over 1 million copies sold, right? It's like, what, like, like when we kill it, we hit a million, right? Da Vinci Code, 40 million copies were sold. And when the movie came out, because of course they have to mo- get a movie, who did they cast? They cast Tom Hanks right? Saving Private Ryan, right? Like he's big time. They cast Tom Hanks for this key role. That means it was huge. Now, though the Da Vinci Code was a quote-unquote fictional book, because it involved conspiracy theories regarding the Roman Catholic Church, people were fascinated. And everyone loves a good religious Christian conspiracy. So questions arose such as, wait, was Jesus really married to Mary Magdalene? Because that's what was written in the Da Vinci Code. And they're like, oh my gosh, what's going on, right? Wait, wait, did, did they have kids? Did they have a secret line of kids that the church was trying to hide? Wait, did the, did the Roman Catholic Church and Constantine substitute the true gospels of Jesus Christ for what we have today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Is this, just, is this not really the Bible, but the, the church has hidden the real texts of God because they have an agenda? Now, the answer to those questions is no, no, and no. And if you're really like, intrigued, you're like, oh my gosh, I need to know the answers. And if Pastor Mike says, no, that's not good enough, you can read a book, you can do your own research called Unlocking the Da Vinci Code, right? This was such a big deal that Christian theologians had to spill ink, right, to respond to the Da Vinci Code. And you guys can look that up. They even made like a, like a, you know, a cheesy Christian movie slash documentary to unlock the, the Da Vinci Code. Right? And it wasn't just non-Christians who were being intrigued and fascinated by these claims. Christians, people within the church, were being captivated by these irreverent myths. Another way we get sidetracked with these old wives' tales is when people in the church get obsessed with end times and numerology. Okay, numerology is when you take the numbers of the Bible, right? different dates, right? different, different time periods and numbers, and you try to like, create forward prophecies. right? It seems like every couple years, some person is calculating the end of the world, aren't they? The most recent and famous one was by a man named Harold Camping. I don't know if you guys remember Harold Camping and his, his end of the world prediction, but he predicted that the world would end in 2011. So he used numbers in the Bible, right? And I guess he was a persuasive speaker because camping convinced masses of people that the world was going to end in 2011. His group spent over $100 million advertising, right? Taking radio airtime, buying billboards, telling the world, telling the world that the world was going to end in 2011, right? Their tagline was this, the world will end in 2011, the Bible guarantees it. The Bible guarantees it. Right, man, make our Bible look bad, right? Well, it's 2017, and I'm sure that every person who donated to that $100 million enterprise, they would like their money back, right? Once again, spiritual junk food. Church, instead of being 
preoccupied with conspiracy theories or end time prophecies, Paul is telling us today, rather, train yourself for godliness. This is the call. This is the exhortation for us to pursue godliness. John Calvin, the great reformed theologian, he writes, he who has godliness wants nothing. It is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. If you have godliness, if you are experiencing and pursuing and growing in godliness, you are lacking in nothing. So what is true godliness? It's simply this, a life grounded in the word of God. It is a life filled with reverence and awe of God. One theologian defines godliness as this. It's gonna go up on the screen. It's the mingling of fear and love, which together constitute the piety of man towards God. I just love that image. It's the mingling of fear and love coming together and producing in us piety, holiness, and godliness. What a beautiful description. King David, the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament, he was known as a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 16, verse eight, he tells us his key, his secret to godliness. And he writes this, I have set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me. Brothers and sisters, how different would your life be if you set the Lord always before you? If God himself was your sole passion and ambition, if you lived your entire life in the presence of God, knowing that you were in the presence of God, wouldn't you study differently? Wouldn't you work differently? Wouldn't you raise your kids or relate to your spouse differently? Wouldn't you spend your money differently if always the Lord was before you? The problem with us is we push him aside and we say, we'll meet, oh God, I'll meet you on Sunday. God, I'll see you at, at small group on a Tuesday night. God, I'll see you this summer when I go on missions. The Lord is not always before us. He's occasionally before us. And that's why our godliness is so sporadic. That's why our godliness is so absent. That's why our growth in godliness seems so sluggish and slow at times. The Lord is not always before us. This is the pathway to godliness. And today God is calling us towards this upward call to train ourselves in this. Now, Paul knows we're all self-interested, right? We're all kind of, we all have some pragmatism at heart. So we wanna know the bottom line and we wanna know whether godliness will actually benefit us. Is godliness profitable or is it all sacrifice? Am I just giving everything up and am I just being a loser in life so that I can be a follower of Jesus? Because there's something about that that doesn't sit well with a lot of us. If Christianity is always losing, always giving, always sacrifice and never gaining, never profiting, never benefiting, then it's gonna get tired. It's gonna be a drain. It's gonna feel burdensome. Well, Paul tells us, no, there is a great profit to godliness. And he describes this in the next two verses. Verse eight, for 
while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's Paul's way of saying you can take it to the bank, okay? You can take it to the bank that godliness has value for the present life and the life to come. Now the Greeks, they were obsessed with training and exercise. If you think our generation is all about like the physique and the body and CrossFit and and all of this stuff, no, the Greeks were obsessed with the human body and the physique. We all know that the Olympic games began in ancient Greece. And to prepare for these athletic competitions, the Greeks came up with the idea of the gymnasium. And at the gymnasium, young men would learn and that they would exercise and they would socialize. And the funny thing is, the Greeks were the original body shamers. You guys know what body shaming is, right? Like if you don't look good, everyone's gonna laugh at you. And so like people are afraid to like take off their clothes at the gym or whatever it might be. They're like, oh, unless I'm buff, I'm not gonna go to the beach, right? So the Greeks were the original body shamers. How, how, why, why would I say that? Because all of the athletes, the young men, Right, the competing men, when they would wrestle, when they would run, when they would compete in these athletic games, they did it in the nude. They did it in the nude to encourage the appreciation of the male body. Right? It wasn't just about competing to win. Your body needed to look good in the process. Think about that. Actually, don't think about that. <laughs> right? But this is why Paul uses the imagery of sports training and competition all throughout his writings in the epistles. He knew that sports and exercise and training was deeply ingrained in the culture. They knew the the value of bodily training. They knew what it took to be fit and muscular. They knew what it took to compete. And Paul is saying this here, church, Ephesians, you know the value of bodily training, but... I wanna tell you that there's something even more valuable, something more important, something more profitable, and that is godliness. Some of you here today, you guys are huge fitness buffs, right? You never miss workouts. You keep a close eye on your diet, you count your macros. I don't even know what that is. I heard that's a thing though. You pay loads of money for gym memberships. Others of you, right? And this is just a different discipline, different obsession. Others of you are huge on financial management. You know where every dollar is going and you're all about making smart investments and maximizing your profits. Others of you, you're all about health and nutrition. My parents, they're Korean immigrants. They're obsessed with this this stuff called well-being food, right? Well-being food. People go gluten-free, non-GMO, free-range, organic. The list goes on and on and on. We know when we have passions, right? When we highly value something, we know what it takes to get it. We know what is required to attain it. Now, here's some good news. You don't have to quit your passions, okay? You don't have to quit exercising or managing your money well or eating healthy. You don't have to quit those things. As long as those things don't become idols, as long as those good things don't become ultimate things, the Bible affirms their value. That's why, I say, that's why Paul says bodily training is of some value. So he's affirming exercise. He's affirming competition and athletics. It is good to be disciplined and we should enjoy the benefits of exercise, health, and good financial management. 
but do you believe there's something greater? In your own life and in your heart, do you believe that there's something more valuable, more profitable than those things? Does your life reflect this biblical ordering? Yes, these are valuable things. These are good things that God has given us, common grace gifts. But there's something far surpassing in godliness. There's something far greater in holiness and in the pursuit of Jesus. Does your life reflect that ordering? God's word is reminding us today that there's nothing more valuable or profitable than godliness. Why? Paul tells us clearly. Because godliness holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Regarding the present life, this theologian named Philip Ryken, he writes this. Godliness is valuable in every situation, in the home, the church, in the marketplace, in times of trouble and prosperity. It helps us deal with friends and enemies. It guides the believer in every situation. Church, do you believe that? Even better, have you experienced that? Have you personally experienced the profitability of godliness? Back in high school, I don't know if you guys believe me, but I'm in the pulpit, Bible on hand. I I could run a sub five minute mile. I could, right? I ran cross country, I was super fit, right? Um, I weighed exactly the same as I do now, right? But I can't run a sub five minute mile, but I used to be able to, because I trained so hard. Unfortunately, that doesn't help me with my marriage, okay? I can't be like, honey, five-minute mom, man, right? <laughs> but I know godliness does. When I've hurt my wife, telling her that, hey, I paid off all of our credit card's debt. Oh, hey, I, I balanced the checkbook. When I've hurt her, that doesn't heal her heart. But when I love her as Christ has loved the church, when I die to myself, and humble myself and I submit before her. You know what happens? Our marriage works. Why? Because godliness has value for all things in the present life. Again, I'm not disparaging exercise and diet, but one day your body will betray you. One day your body will fail you. We can avoid and delay as much as we can, but sickness and death will come to us all. And there isn't enough kale or quinoa, right, to save the day, to keep that from happening. But when you've trained for godliness, when you have built your life on the word of God, you can endure. You won't be crushed. You won't be defeated. Because you will know that in Christ, because of the gospel, death has lost its sting. For those who are in Christ, the victory of Jesus on the cross is for you, for your loved ones who perish on this earth. There is something heroic and beautiful about Christian funerals. I I can tell you, uh, this year I've been to more funerals than any previous year. And when they are funerals for believers, for men and women who are devout in their faith, there is a beauty and a power and a peace there, why? Because death has lost its sting. And when we grow in godliness, when we realize that godliness has value for this present life and the life to come, then death is not the end. And godliness is not just profitable 
for the present life. It's profitable for the life to come. Church, your godliness is an asset you get to enjoy for eternity. College students, as important as your grades are to get into that master's program that you desperately want to get into, your grades, our finances, our accomplishments, those things are for this life alone. For this life alone. Now, they are valuable. They're meaningful, but they are finite. And we need to rightly order these temporal, finite things as valuable but not ultimate, right? As good but not idols, right? When your life is reformed by the word of God, when your life is shaped by godliness, then that life is enjoyed forever. That's the promise that Paul is giving us today. And that makes godliness more profitable than anything you can pursue in this world. Think about that. You can train yourself for godliness and it benefits you today in this life and throughout eternity. As Paul says, the saying is true and trustworthy. That's the profit of godliness. And finally, the hope of godliness. That's our third point today. We've looked at the call to godliness and the profit of godliness. In this final point, we're going to ask the question, what hope do you and I have to actually attain godliness? Well, practically speaking, how do we get it? Okay. How do we become godly? How do we actually grow in godliness? And verse 10 tells us, Paul writes, for to this end, We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen. So how do we get it? Well, on our end, we toil and we strive. In the same way, an athlete must discipline his body daily to perform at its best. Training for godliness requires sacrifice. Training for godliness doesn't happen automatically. I really wish it was. I really wish it could happen like automatically. Yeah, I know our college students haven't seen The Matrix, but in The Matrix, uh, like you would plug into The Matrix and then you could just learn Kung Fu. You could just like learn how to fly a helicopter and, and they would just automatically upload that into your brain and that would be awesome. But that's not the way that we are wired. That's not realistic. In our lives, for us to grow in godliness, we must toil and we must strive. We must be diligent to put sin to death. We must be faithful and persistent to renew our minds with the word of God. We must strengthen our souls with prayer. But that doesn't mean we become ascetic. It doesn't mean we deny ourselves and abuse ourselves in unnatural ways. You see, that was the heresy Paul was combating in the beginning of chapter four, right? They tried to take their faith in such a hardcore, radical manner that they suddenly said, hey, you can't eat these things, you can't marry, you can't have sex, you can't, you know, and they started creating all of these new laws and regulations to try and grow in godliness and holiness. And the problem with that was it was unnatural. It's not according to God's biblical mandate for how he wants us to live in this world. The hope of godliness, okay, It's not just set though. It's not set on our toiling and our striving. The hope for godliness is set on the living God who is our savior. And that's good news. That's such good news because we are reminded in verse 10 that we are not training alone. 
Church, brother or sister, you are not striving for godliness alone by yourself. And it's not even you and your accountability partner or you and your small groups. It's you and God. You see, church, when we train for godliness, we are laboring for what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification, that's like a theological term. That's a theological term for simply becoming godly. To be sanctified means to be set apart to be made holy. And sanctification is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, too often Christians think we have to practice our spiritual disciplines to become holy. Guys, that's only a half truth, okay? So if you go in and think, man, I gotta read my Bible, I gotta pray, I gotta worship, I gotta go on missions, I gotta serve, I gotta fast, I gotta meditate. Why? To become godly, to become holy. That is just a half truth. Why? The real truth is that we practice the spiritual disciplines in order for God to make us holy. There's a huge difference. Some people, too many people think the work makes them holy, but that's not the case. The disciplines are pathways of grace. Bible reading, prayer, fasting, meditation, those things are not sanctifiers in and of themselves. Does that make sense? They are not the solution. They are not the prescription themselves, right? They are just instruments. You see, if you treat Bible reading as something that just makes you holy and godly automatically, that's a surefire way to legalism. No, these disciplines are instruments God uses by which he works to make us godly. Brothers and sisters, sanctification is the work of God. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to make you godly. God is working in you. God is working for you. So set your hope on him. Set your hope on him. Do you remember how godliness is profitable in this life and the next? It's profitable because God has promised to produce godliness in your life on earth. And he's promised to produce godliness in your life in heaven. You guys know that's a promise that God gives you? He promises to make you more like Jesus. And even though right now you and I can be in a season where you're wandering and you're struggling, and, and, and if you were honest, you'd be like, Pastor Mike, I even feel like I'm backsliding. God's ultimate promise is where you are now is not where you will ultimately be. I am progressively going to make you more like Jesus in this life. And ultimately, I'm going to finish that work. The Holy Spirit promises to sanctify you for godliness. In the next life, the Holy Spirit promises to glorify you, to complete your godliness, okay? So there's sanctification in this life, and then there's glorification in the next life. To quote Phil Riken one last time, sanctification is the root of glorification, and glorification is the fruit of sanctification. Helps if you rhyme it, right? Sanctification is the root. That's where the Spirit is beginning this work in our lives right now as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Glorification is the final work of the Spirit where we're going to be right, perfected and glorified and not burdened with the struggle of sin in the flesh anymore. Church, this is the hope we have when we trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that as we believe in God who has sent his son to secure our salvation on Calvary's cross, that he is faithful to make us his own. He is powerful to make us what we are not. You see, guys, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we're gonna say we're not godly. We in and of ourselves, we are not holy. We are not that godly. But you know what God does? He makes us what we are not. He makes us godly by the power of his Holy Spirit. Church, let us cling with steadfast hope to the promise that we can become the kind of people who enjoy the blessings and the power of godliness in this life and the next. Let's take it. Let's believe in it. Let's train for it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us right now in this moment to hope in you? Help us to have an enduring hope that despite maybe cold hearts and distant feelings, that despite difficult and painful circumstances that we find ourselves on earth. Help us to hope in you, the living God. You, the God of our salvation. You, the God who is ever with us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to believe in you, that you can make us godly, that you can make us like Jesus. Father, I pray that you would awaken in us a desire to pursue godliness. For many of us, Lord, we are so content being who we are, doing what we do. But Lord, help us to see that you offer us something so much deeper and sweeter and greater as you invite us to pursue Jesus, as you invite us to live lives shaped and formed by your word. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to experience the profitability of your hand and lordship in our lives. Lord, I pray that for myself. I pray that for every brother and sister.